You are listening to the One of Us.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Sony's Imperial troops have committed an attack on Earth-6116, releasing the film Morbius. Troops scatter everywhere. Meanwhile, brave Jedi Knights, Aaron Something Blue Woodle, and Chris Redfield Cox do their best to make the difference for the sake of humanity and the rebellion by reviewing the home releases this week, including great films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Remo Williams' The Adventures Begins, and The Batman, the complete series. But will there be some complete bummer Will there be surprises? Will there be disagreements? Follow their adventures and find out. <laughs> so I may have been re I may be watching Star Wars The Clone Wars right now. Like a lot. Like I may have watched like 40 episodes in the last week. So I'm just saying the, the intro might be stuck in my head. That's okay. The intro is that you just did is more fun than at least a few of the movies that we're going to be covering tonight. And that's always true. I mean, whenever mm-hmm. you're doing a show like Digital Noise and you're taking taking a whole stack of movies and TV shows, I mean, it's one in a million when you have a show that, like, everything was good. Right? Although, honestly, like, the worst thing, I probably ended up expecting to enjoy it a lot more. And then one of the things that I expected to be absolute garbage, just atrociously, irredeemably bad, really surprised me. So this is huh. going to be a show of twists. And I know for a fact that you're wrong on that one thing. So that's fine. <laughs> it's not what you think it is. <laughs> oh, really? Also, I'm j- just going to oh. say this. We have what I think should be the actual Joker movie on here, too. Because I think it would be a fabulous take for the Joker if we hadn't already had way too many Joker projects in, the f- in our uh, recent time. I'll-, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I mean, I know Jim Carrey said he wanted to play the Joker, but come on. Wait, did he? No, I don't you know. You know what? He's going to come out of retirement for the Joker. He's going to be the Joker in Todd Phillips' sequel. Just I'm happy for, for him that he has said, you know what? I don't need this bullshit. I mean, we're looking around at everything, the way things are right now, and the fact you literally, as anybody who's a celebrity, has got all t- eyes on them, you can do nothing right anymore. Well, like I'm like, I get it, man. I'd retire, too. I'd be like, look, I'm worth fucking almost a billion dollars. I'm just going to chill the fuck out and maybe write a book about fucking Constantinople or some shit. <laughs> I, I kind of like I caught someone giving shit to Jim Carrey because he was, you know, retiring again for, I think, maybe the third or fourth time. And I'm, my media reaction was that sounds kind of like the life. Sit around, do whatever you want to do. Every once in a while, someone brings you Sonic and you get to ham it up like nobody's business for a few hours. And then you sure. go back off to write your kid's book. Yeah, it feels like you yourself. can't really get in trouble for that, right? You're playing Mr. No. You know, Mr. Robotnik. <laughs> You're like, what are you, how are you going to get in trouble for that? They'll be like, that mustache was clearly a take on, on, uh, the, 
Archduke Ferdinand in World War One, and that's <laughs> offensive. <laughs> Sorry, I, there's lots of stuff to be genuinely offended about without people getting just falling over themselves looking yeah. for things to be angry about. Humorously I'm looking enough, at you. Just... I'm looking at you, Will Smith defenders. That's what I'm looking. Who oh, I'm looking at. So tired. Oh my god! I I talked to somebody recently. Uh, not not somebody. My partner was telling me that she's actually really like impressed with Will Smith because oh god. of that that defending his wife aspect. And I was just like, uh, you know, so you why do can't get everybody. That that was... Why can't everybody just be a dick and we move on? Like, yeah, all around it was kind of a shit thing. Let's like, first off, that joke on. isn't even really an offensive joke. You're really reaching to try and find that a super <laughs> offensive joke, considering like less than three hours before the podcast. The woman in question said, I love my hair like this. I love being bald. There's literally nothing you could say to offend me. She said that in an interview. Okay. So first off that second, <laughs> I'm with a uh, Saturday night live news. It says like, l- literally it's entirely possible. Chris Rock did not know that she had alopecia. We don't follow every <laughs> move of Will Smith and, and corporation of what's happening. But and you know two, what? We did it. And three, this, it I don't again. care what the joke was. It would have to have been a thousand times more offensive than whatever your most imagination of offensiveness is to get on stage in front of the biggest award ceremony, arguably in the world, and hit another human being for it. I, I'm sorry. You're like, whatever you're telling yourself, that you're just wrong. You're wrong, it, wrong, wrong. Even Will Smith- and Jada Smith has said, we were wrong. That was wrong. That should never have happened. So, come on. <laughs> it, it does make me gleeful that both of the things we're talking about, Morbius uh, and Will Smith, I have never seen. I didn't watch the Oscars. I don't know that I'm going to see Morbius. It's a, it's, it's a fun opening, you know? I don't know anything that's going on anymore. I am anyway, no longer culturally I, relevant. I'm going to stop being annoyed by people who just, especially people who like normally are, I feel like, on the more sensible thing side of things or letting their emotions run away with them on this. I'm like, when is that? Why is that? How do you possibly see in your mind that's a good reason to punch another human being? Anyway, stop. I I'm going to let it go. I think what we, get, I think we all need to just go play Elden Ring instead and just get lost. <laughs> no, that will it. make me want to hit another person, man. That game is too hard. I like games that I can set on easy and toddlers can succeed at that's what i like that I, the, the games that have like a 70 80 hour play time but like i basically can't lose playing that's my mm-hmm. type of video game <laughs> i get that i get that anyway we're gonna go into actual movies god we've already been talking for almost six minutes about dun, dun, dun. nonsense and by the way, if you want to actually see us talk about it, this particular review is available for subscribers in a video version where we'll show like scenes from things and what have you. Thanks to our editor, Mike McAllister, who'll throw some clips in there. But for the rest of you, it's just a regular digital noise. And let's get into it. And we're going to start off with, well, it's funny because not that long ago, we talked about the original, original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1956 film uh, that was directed by Don Siegel, which is... I'm sorry, straight up a fucking masterpiece of 50s science fiction cinema. It's amazing. I hadn't hadn't watched the original for a long time when I saw it, and I was like, not really expecting it to like it as much as the later 70s one, which is, to me, the gold standard of Body Snatchers films. But I kind of went, do I like the 50s version better now? It was just really, really, really good. And yes, its subtext is very, very different. 
I mean, it's been commented on to no end that that one is more sort of about the fear of encroaching communism, which was a very big thing at that time. And also not necessarily like on the, you know, it, it kind of is both sides against the middle there. Like, what side are you taking there? There's, there's a lot of subtext going on. It's an interesting film. The 1978 remake of it, directed by Philip Kaufman, is definitely going with a different type of subtext, even though the story is essentially the same idea here, which is that this race of creatures has abandoned their dying planet and traveled to Earth. They go to San Francisco. They form as like little pods with pink flowers. And we slowly figure out while following the human characters in here that what they're doing is they sort of like infect humans kind of gradually knock them out and while they're asleep they form like a clone version of their body transferring like all their thoughts and memories to them and when that process is complete the new body awakens with those memories but with the motivations of the alien race and the old body just kind of disintegrates and they're surreptitiously taking over by doing this. And so there's a group of humans here uh, led by Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Leonard Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Cartwright, right? We're sort of on the run trying to figure out what's happening, trying to acknowledge that this is even happening at all while this shit is already, even when this movie starts, it feels like it's already too late. You know, you you, you figured this out too late. And the context well, here is more like the change that was going on in the 70s, the fear of sort of like new age and hippiedom and things like that. And it's not dealing with it in a conservative sort of way. Like it's not attacking it conservatively. It's just like the way society was changing and Vietnam right. and things like that. It ultimately feels like it's on on the side of the movement because like a lot of the characters that get involved are psychologists or people who are trying to help uh, the the still human couple kind of slowly losing their mind with a partner who ostensibly is not their partner. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's kind of interesting that it's a lot of people who are being labeled as like crazy or they're being hysterical and they're being like punished by society for being like no 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 this is bullshit uh this also brings in one thing that i kind of liked which which it touches on a little bit i mean let's be honest the body snatchers are definitely bad but they do touch on that idea of what if they aren't just a little bit where like yeah maybe you do get to retain your original memories and original thoughts and yada 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 in a perfect body that's grown from you out of a pod uh, and I, I, I liked that angle to it. I, I hadn't seen this. Actually, the only version of Body Snatchers I had seen before going into this <coughs> was Puppet Masters, the, the oh. redo in the 90s. Which is a decent, uh, a which decent redo. I literally, I legitimately enjoy. Um, and that one's far more of an action film, where this one is much more of a slow burn kind of domestic thriller almost. It's very small scale for being such a big movie. But... Yeah, it has an interesting documentary film style to it, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it was a lot better than I expected. Uh, a lot colder, though. And this is a film that I grew up with being celebrated as one of the great genre movies you have to see. Like, I remember, like, it was one of those, oh, well, you've never seen Invasion, you've got to see Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's oh. so amazing. Like, everybody taught, held it up as, like, one of the highlights of genre filmmaking when I was a kid. So, I mean, I saw it several times as a child. What's interesting is that every generation, you can put what's going on in your world today and substitute it in here, and the film becomes about 
whatever those things are. Mm-hmm. You know, like a couple of years ago, it felt like it was like fear of Trumpism. And now it like feels like it has more to do with people who are afraid of like, uh, uh, who are anti-science. And it's just like, there's always something you can attach to it that makes it kind of eternally refreshed. But what I like about this one is it's just so steadily creepy. It's one of the most efficiently paranoid films I've think has ever been made. <laughs> it's, it, it it's it's a movie of paranoia. There there isn't ever really that big huge action set piece. It's all it's dread. The dread just builds and builds yeah. and builds until we get to the climax and the end of the movie, which actually one of the big problems I had with this movie being so seminal is that I knew the ending to this movie probably 20 years ago and have been like there that big twist surprise ending we all know it going into it which robs a little bit of the impact of the well, surprise yeah that that image going, is a, i wonder when it happens that and, image is a is a gif that i know yeah. i personally use all the time so <laughs> like but like yeah it's a super it's one of the most famous cinematic images ever and the image itself goes oh shit i know how this ends so that sucks that you know that. I imagine, like, I don't remember as a kid seeing it for the first time, but I'm sure it was a huge, like, startling, dark surprise, the ending of it. Yeah. But but I think it still is like you watch the whole movie hoping maybe that's a dream sequence. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe there's like 10 seconds after that where you know they got away good. And it's like, yeah. no, it's, or he it's goes, just hopeless. Or he goes, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> funny is this actually got re-released in a 2k scan by shout factory in 2016 on blu-ray this new version by kino lober is a 4k rest restoration so it is by far the better version uh, of this and in fact although the shout factory had a really nice set of bonus features here uh this is um got pretty much the same bonus features here so this is by far the better version to get with a commentary by the director which is an archival uh track which ends up being very scene specific there's a commentary with author and film historian steve haberman uh, originally recorded for the shout release which is sort of a scholarly look at it uh there's starcrossed in the invasion interview with actress brooke adams who i forgot that i really always had a crush on until i rewatched this i was like Oh yeah, Brooke Adams. Oh, I get that. Man, she's so hot. I I forgot how hot she. She was also in what the Dead Zone, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think uh, she was the girlfriend of Christopher yeah. Walken in the Dead Zone. Anyway, interview with her. Uh, recreating the invasion. Interview with screenwriter W. D. Richter. Oh, I forgot to bring this up. Holy crap! The screenwriter of this film. Do you know what else he's famous for writing? I do not. Hit me. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension and co-writing Big Trouble in Little China. Two of my favorite movies of all time. (laughs) Big Trouble in Little China is the most most 80s movie ever made, and I will adore it to the day I die. Uh, Scoring the Invasion interview with composer Danny Zietlin. Leading the Invasion interview with actor Art Hindle. uh, Writing the Pod interview with Jack Finney, expert Jack Seabrook, a writer who penned a book about Jack Finney's writings, talks about the original author's legacy and the novel that inspired the original film. Uh, Revisitors from Outer Space or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Pod archival piece from the old dvd days with the various cast and crew practical magic the special effect pod another old uh, featurette with kaufman and the special effects guy man behind the screen the sound effects pod uh the sound designer talks about his work on here which is 
actually pretty notable and famous. In fact, it's one of the most notable uses ever of the Wilhelm scream. Like when people often like you ever see anything that talks about the Wilhelm scream, which is the most overused piece of audio in Hollywood history, but that's done at this point is kind of a insider nod joke. It's like, I don't even remember where it first came from, like originally what the date was, but like it was something in the twenties and it was part of a general sound library that was being, was it? Okay. I want to say where they like had a bunch of different screens. So it's like at least a hundred years old and still today. I'll be watching movies and television and be like, there it is. This is the Wilhelm yep. scream. Yep. <laughs> you recognize it, but it's used very notably in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, and then the invasion will be televised. The cinematography pod, which is cinematographer joined by director, writer, what have you, uh, in the way and discussing the way in which this film is sort of a noir movie, which I suppose it is. By the way, and it was wrong. 1951. I Googled it. Oh, fair enough. So not quite 100 years. We still got a few decades to go. Yeah. So close, so close. We're good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about a film we will not be talking about 100 years from now or almost 100 years from now, <laughs> which is uh, the latest entry of the Resident Evil filmed series, oh. which is a complete reboot of the series called Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Now, we originally yeah. intended on reviewing this when it came out theatrically. We had every intent of going to see this in the, in the theater, except the studio realized what they had and literally had started to set screenings and canceled them. Was like, nope, sorry, we don't want anyone to see this movie. <laughs> because, and you know why? I think you can guess why. Because it's really... Look, bad. Okay, look... I enjoyed the entire original run, except for as the aforementioned last Resident Evil movie. I, overall, I'm like, I can go back and rewatch most of those and, and get some fun out of them in the way they're intended. I mean, I think only the first one is genuinely a good, bad movie where you're like, oh, this is a, this is a movie I'd go like, you know what? This is a pretty good movie overall. You know, I mean, it's silly and the effects are, are cheap, but yeah, it's worth seeing. You know, the rest of them are, are more of that sort of like, it's a bad movie that you're going to have fun with. This is not a bad movie that I could have fun with. And I was so hoping, because I am a big devotee of the Resident Evil video game series. I love the shit out of them. The only one I haven't played is the newest one, because I don't have a PlayStation 5. And, uh, (laughs) damn it, someone get me a PlayStation 5. And uh, I was like, okay, this is exciting. They're going back to the beginning. They got a brand new director here, Johans Roberts, who directed a film, a horror film I actually genuinely liked, 47 Meters Down. And then he directed uh, the sequel to The Strangers, Pray at Night, which wasn't really good, but it had a few really notable moments in it. I like the sequel better than the original, so there's that. I can't go with you there, sir. But there were some scenes that were... There was like a swimming pool scene that was really good in it. I remember that. It's been a while. I haven't really held it close in my memory. But this is an attempt to go and reboot totally. And in the sense that it felt like the dude that wrote this, which is the director, just sat down and played the first like three or four games and wrote down everything everything that happened in them and then was just like let's just to make a movie that is as close as possible to what happens in these games which what no don't don't do that sort of yeah you're not wrong it 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 feels more of a horror movie more of an attempt to make a horror movie than the others were because the the Wes Anderson Angelina not Angelina Jolie that would be interesting that would have been in the Mila Jovovich probably still would have been evil movies uh, like they're action movies. They're not remotely scary ever 
And no. this one at least tries to be scary. I, I will admit, though, I, I don't play the games. I've never finished a single Resident Evil game. I've played several of them. So I was like, oh, hey, I kind of recognize these events. And it was kind of fun in that part. But so I did like this movie, even though I acknowledge it's it's horrible. And I, I'm going to damn it with fate and praise and tell you why I like it. And it's going to be a reach. But, like, I acknowledge, like, the CG is bad. The <laughs> oh, acting is bad. Oh, it's so bad. I'm sure the characters are wrong. I kind of liked the lead actress. She was fun. Right, that's but, uh, um, uh, Kaya Scodelario, uh, who is best known as, if you were from England, she's on the show Skins, which I guess every actor yeah. in England in the last 20 yeah, years everybody. has been on that show. But uh, she also played Teresa in the uh, Maze Runner films. She plays Claire yeah. Redfield. So, I enjoyed her, but... Okay, so when the original Resident Evil game came out, at least in America, uh, it got saddled with this full motion video kind of intro sequence of the stars team walking through the foggy maze and getting attacked by demon dogs. And it was this, it was as all FMV sequences were in that era, it was schlocky, horribly acted, horribly shot, and really just like a low budget, looks like someone shot it with their candy cam. Yeah. <laughs> And this is what made, like, that's what this made me feel like. Was like, it brought me back to booting up Resident Evil 1 and playing it on my computer and my friend's PS1 and like watching that video and just like that, that total cheese factor. And so like, I kind of enjoyed it from that perspective. I was cackling at how bad it was. I was a little bit drunk and maybe it was something else. Um, and like, I, I thoroughly got enjoyment out of it. Would I recommend this to my worst enemy? Hell no. I hope that oh isn't Chris's blood that he just threw up in his um, mouth listening to Aaron defend this movie on any level. But like, <laughs> you know, like if, if you can really enjoy a truly horribly made piece of shit and just marvel in it. And being I like, wow, it. that's a choice they made. And that's, they tried. Like, they, they don't, they don't not try. They legitimately tried to make a movie here and it did not work. And anytime they swing that hard, I find myself being intrigued by it. Look, my so God, like, of, I, I had a good time. My God of War looking friend. I mean, that is a compliment. You are so sweet and innocent. I love you so much. You're just, you're still haven't reached that burnout point where you're like, I have zero tolerance for bullshit, for lazy bullshit. You're like, can still engage. And I'm like, no, I cannot. I cannot. This is lazy fucking bullshit. There's nothing that I found fun here at all. The story is it's the eighties. Originally Claire Redfield and her older brother, Chris. The original characters from the original game, they're a Raccoon City orphanage, uh, yada yada. There's some a thing that comes up later where she befriends a disfigured girl there, Lisa Trevor, which actually doesn't even figure in the games till like four or something, like Veronica, Code Veronica. Uh, I don't remember this at all. Yeah. Is this from the game or yeah, the movie? The, no, it, that's the thing is this is like this mix of like the first four games or so of like details and shit and a few things from the nintendo like re uh, uh uh prequel games it's like it's the resident evil mythos has always been very confusing to follow anyway point is is that she she escaped 1998 she comes back hitchhiking hitchhiking a semi-truck almost immediately zombies 
And like the first zombie, the truck uh, driver owned a do- Doberman who licks up blood of like a, zo- a zombie girl, the a zombie woman that the truck hit. That dog turns into a zombie because you got to have zombie Dobermans. Uh, meanwhile, there's Leon-, Leon S. Kennedy is a rookie police officer new in town, which is for Resident Evil fans, the most egregious fuck up oh, in this oh. film. Actually, agreed. I may not be a huge Resident Evil fan, but even that pissed me off a little bit. Dude, they like he they they decide he is he's comic relief, or he's this incompetent doof douchebag who just stumbles in, over things into success accidentally. Who's just a complete mishap of a human being, and and like everyone makes fun of him and gives him shit. And you're like, that's not that character at all. And like, I'm not gonna be fucking like queenie about it but jesus christ it's just an annoying cliche of a character and weird to turn this very positive character from the game into this doofus and it's a super fucking weird choice because the the movie is clearly trying to skew towards the games and like pitch that so why do you change the main character of the franchise yeah no agreed so anyway, they uh, she she's there looking for her brother Chris, who's played here by uh, Robbie Amell, who I have very strong positive feelings for lately because he plays Nathan Brown, the lead character on the show Upload, which inexplicably is much better than it has any right to be, and you should watch it. Oh, is it? Oh, it's charming as fuck, dude. Yeah, it's he on was Amazon also Prime. from. He was from Flash. He was, uh, Arrow. what's her name's yeah. original husband? Well, I thought he was Arrow. Wasn't Arrow? No. Is he on Flash? I can't remember. He's in the, yeah, that, the, the yeah he was on the CW Flash. show, The Tomorrow People, too, that absolutely nobody saw. <laughs> and he played Fred in one of the Scooby Doo movies. But I'm not defending his past. I'm saying Upload is a really good <laughs> show and you should watch it. And he's really good on it. Anyway, so it ends up with being like everybody kind of ending up coming in together at once eventually as the zombie outbreak happens in Raccoon City and just lots of shit. They're like, eh, remember that from the game? Uh? And even to the point where they're like, look, it's a red herb. <laughs> I mean, like, what happens if I put this key on top of this key? I'm like, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's dumb. That is not, that's you. It's like, you don't get that video game storytelling and movie storytelling are two different types of storytelling. No, they, they, they fundamentally don't. They try to hit all the beats of the games and just hope that it makes a good movie instead of just a good drunk movie. And the effects are terrible. So if the effects have been cool and they'd done good action, I would have been like, you know what? Sure, why not? I mean, I'll watch this because it's dumb fun, but they're not. The effects are terrible. The action is terribly shot. It's not fun. I'm, to me, this was never fun. It was just watching a sl- train, a, a, a car accident, and that was about it. Well, I'm sorry. All the light has gone out in your life, Chris, and you can no longer find joy. <laughs> oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> uh, there are some extra features with the Blu-ray here. Uh, I'm replicating the DNA, about 11 minutes of its faithfulness to the first. It says two games, but Jesus Christ. Trust me, a lot more than the first two games. Uh, Cops, Corpses, and Chaos for eight minutes, which is looking at its horror influences, cast chemistry, yada, yada. Zombies, Liquors, and the Horrors of Resident Evil. Yes, they do bring the liquors into here, and they look terrible. And this focuses on uh, the prosthetics and special effects, which are terrible. And that's about it. There's no good reason to watch this movie. Do yourself a favor and don't watch this movie. And uh, just we'll move on to something else that I feel like you should watch Resident Evil before you should watch this next film that we're going to talk about, which is called Ditched. <laughs> Wait. Oh, yes. Actually, you know, 
Uh, so I'm not gonna lie, I like ditched. Um, oh, I boy. far prefer. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So ditched is a very simple movie, like obscenely simple. Uh, it's basically an ambulance gets turned over with a couple of crazy people in it. There's a few police. It was like a prison transfer from a, a mental insane asylum or a jail. It's not hundred percent clear and I don't really care. Um, but they get turned over and the characters are all going like, holy shit, we're all going to die or we're dying. They start putting together kind of who's injured and who's not. And then right about the time that they start thinking about going to safety, people in ghillie suit show up and just start killing people left and right. And it turns into what is basically a, a siege slasher film uh, with a group of unknown assailants hiding out in the woods and picking people off at their leisure. And it doesn't take long before you start to find out the people in the woods, like this isn't an accident. Uh, the ambulance wasn't just in an accident. It was purposely put here and the people out there have a plan. And like, I'm not going to lie, the, the plot's stupid. Uh, it just is. It makes the, no the sense. Lo- the logic leaps that they try to go to to justify the characters out in the woods and kind of create a twisty story, it's eye-rolling. What this movie does well uh, is that it's a single location film set at the bottom of an embankment off of a highway, and it's clearly made for like 50 bucks, Uh, like just no money. And they lit the fuck out of this movie. That I'll give you. That I'll give you. It is routinely a gorgeous movie made for zero money. Like gorgeous is strong. Okay, fine. You're right. I'm 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 aiming high. Uh, (laughs) Compared to most uh, micro budget movies of this era, like it looks like a competently made movie at times. It has really interesting shots. It has really interesting lighting. There's some really good composition. Like you've listened here long enough, you know that I'm a sucker for good camera work and, and good cinematography. And anytime we put on one of these micro budget, just shitty slasher movies. It's such a chore because they're all filmed just so horribly. I get it. I do. I do. So like, like I do hand you some shit that is nothing but here's a slasher. Teenagers die. End of story. Some lame thing to explain why they were doing it. Okay, I get it. I get a lot Arrow and what have you shit that's like old seventies and eighties stuff that you're like, why do I have to watch this, Chris? Like because (laughs) it's a classic to some people. It influenced things that were better, and you're like, (laughs) fuck. Okay, so at least this is trying to do something different. The problem is this is from the writer writer of uh, Blood Rain Two by Uwe Boll, and it shows. This is oh yeah incompetently written at points you're just like wait that doesn't make any sense there's so many wait that doesn't make any sense things and for a movie that all takes place in one location with a relatively simple once it's revealed like here's what's actually going on story that's sad that you can't follow the track of things i just yeah outside of the main character who i thought was pretty good Everybody's a pretty bad fucking actor in this thing. Like, oh, outwardly terrible at points. Especially some I of the mean, guys who are the, 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 you know, the, the prisoners who are being transferred. Like, wow, you are, you, they wouldn't have let you on the last season of Oz. You know, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the main face villain, but you're not wrong. The script for this movie is, is abysmal. Like, it's, it's, gets by on good lighting and good kills because the kills are fun and they They're are okay. gory. There are some good gory uh, kills. And, but, like, the, there is this logic leap mentality where they try to 
kind of show you why everyone who dies kind of deserve to die. And every time they try to do that, it just stops the movie in its tracks. This is a horrible script, but whoever lit and shot this movie, I want them to go on to higher budget. Also, because like, this is the movie that should make you feel like, wait, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Like, at a certain point, it should make you go, well, maybe some of these people do kind of deserve to get punished. But the problem is, is that the movie is very like, well, I don't know. Maybe these people are just crazy and they're totally wrong, too. Like, it can't decide what it wants. And that totally derails what makes the the plot reveal, inter- the twist reveal interesting. Yeah. With one exception, all of the reveals are after uh, you go in and the person dies. It's like, oh, by the way, did you know that they did this horrible yeah. thing? So they don't really play up the tension of what the fuck did you do and why are you here? The infighting that would happen in that situation. The only points I'm only points I'm going to give this is like, hey, it was a cool idea. It was just terribly executed, but cool idea, and that it's actually pretty well shot and lit. But man, I feel overall it was directed pretty badly. It's edited horribly. It's acted almost across the board really, really bad. It makes bad choices left and right. And wow, its ending is like, so what the fuck did I even watch this movie for then? Oh, I I liked the ending. Really? It was terrible, but I enjoyed it. Like, I I liked the balls to hold the way they did. You need to put that on your, like, your description of, (laughs) on your social media. Aaron, Aaron Whittle, it was terrible, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Like, I'm not going to lie. Part of the reason why I'm tempted to see Morbius is enough people have hated it that I'm like, you know, I'm probably going to go in and Just have a good time. Don't don't spend the money. All I'm asking you is not let them know you saw it. Do whatever you need oh. to do. Just don't give Sony the thumbs up to make more films like it. That's all I beg. That's all I ask. Watch it if you must. Waste your time. On your deathbed, you'll go back and go like, I watched, spent an hour and 48 minutes. I could have had now <laughs> watching that piece of shit. Sure, go ahead if you want. That's not my business. But I admit, I've liked plenty of films that are generally thought to be terrible. Like our next movie, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Man, I can't tell you, Aaron, when this movie came out in 1985, I was 15 years old, and I was like, I am all about Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. I am digging the fuck out of this movie. I saw it in the theater several times. It had Fred Ward, who was you know, had been in some stuff before this as, as like secondary roles. Not like, not like totally tertiary, not like extras, but like roles with like, you know, we, we had characters, the right stuff, Escape from Alcatraz, Southern Comfort. I mean, and later he like, I think he won an award for Henry in June. He's a genuinely good actor who most of his career got put in more pulpy fun stuff. This film is based on the pulp paperback series called The Destroyer, which, holy crap, look at the Wikipedia page for that, because this series got fucking wacky. For a series that starts off like the Punisher with sort of a weird Buddhist Zen spiritual undertone ends up with him fighting werewolves and zombies with like cyber implants. What? Yeah, no, dude, it gets super fucking weird. All and right. the, and I, been, you just sold the shit out of me. On this book <laughs> I think it's been written by multiple different people over the years. It's been over 150 novels in the series, but back in 1985, oh. it, there were already like 20 or 30 books in it. And so like, Oh, we're going to take this character, Remo Williams, uh, and, 
we're going to make a movie about this thing directed by Guy Hamilton, who did four James Bond films, for the record, English film director. And uh, this was set up to be the first film in a series. And it was really the poster, the trailers, everything was set up about there's going to be a huge set piece like takes place on the Statue of Liberty. Anyway, Fred Ward plays uh, Officer Samuel Edwards, Sam Macon, who later is renamed as Remo Williams, when uh, he's unwillingly turned into an assassin for a very secret United States organization called Cure that's run by all people Wilford Brimley. <laughs> uh, and his special oh. agent, uh, uh, Con Mac McCleary, played by J.A. Preston, who you probably know from Hill Street Blues, if, if nowhere else. In fact, you probably don't because you're all young. But... Anyway, uh, the point is, he's like, look, if you decide not to do this, we'll just kill you. It's fine. The rest of the world already thinks you're dead. So you're either going to do this or not. But we're going to send you in and we're going to make you train under the guy who's like our top trainer, who is this uh, guy who he's is an, he, a racist Asian stereotype, who is, what he is a wildly racist, racist Asian stereotype. <laughs> uh, Joel Gray, who is a white dude and won a golden globe or no i'm sorry he got a golden globe nomination for his performance and i admit as much as it's a racist like role it is a pretty good performance you know he nails the character you're right he fits that archetype very well it's just there is not one second of him on screen that's not like at the Ooh, time, this when it cool. came, at the time when it came out, we weren't having those discussions. Is all I can tell you. We were like, "Dude, that guy's cool." In fact, I remember finding out years after I saw this that that was not an Asian guy because this, I believe, also got nominations for best makeup because the makeup's really good. He looks like an Asian dude. I was like, I even watching it now, I'm like, he pretty much straight up looks like an Asian guy to me. I would not have thought watching this he wasn't. I mean, kind of, he looks kind of like an undead person, but yeah. yeah. Well, he's supposed yeah. to be a super old Asian guy, Master Sinanju Chion. Anyway, so like he's like teaches him like humility and how to be a super badass, and most importantly, how to dodge bullets. His first superpower of many to come in the novels. Trust me. Uh, and Remo, like, Fred Ward's whole thing is like, ah, I'm not listening to this bullshit. He's like kind of like an early Bruce Willis type. He's like man on the street action hero type guy. Like, like guys, like, he's not a huge dude, but he's like this likable, hey, I'm just a guy. I'm the guy you hang out with in the bar that gets in a bad situation and handles it. He's that type of action guy back in the day. A sort of just post Charles Bronson, Charles Bronson, if you will. And that's how they play him here. He's going, oh, I'm so tired of this bullshit. But he has to, because literally the people he's working for will kill him if he doesn't. But either way, the people he's working for are not the bad guys. The bad guys are, well, other people. I just rewatched this film, and even I'm like, I don't remember who the oh, fucking oh, bad guys oh, were in this movie. <laughs> oh, I do, because I love this. Because uh, the bad guys are evil, corrupt billionaires trying to sell the U.S. government shoddy uh, weapons there you at go. cost. And uh, Kate Mulgrew, i.e. Captain Janeway, finds it out. And the best part, there are two things about this movie that I kind of love. One is that it is entrenched in racism and sexism of the day because there's the, the, the character we've already discussed, but also Remo Williams inclusion in the entire plot hinges on the fact 
that he's creepy and a little upset when Kate Mulgrew turns him down. <laughs> and because he has to flex his nuts and try to show how manly he is, he pisses off the bad guys who want to kill him just because they, I don't know, just do. Um, but also for the fact that this movie in 85, when I was one year old, correctly nails the importance of the internet and digital communication in the intelligence world 20, 40 years later. It's amazing. Like, the internet looks nothing like it should, but Wilford, 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 <coughs> Wilford Brimley sits there and, like, does the spiel about the power of the internet and the power of digital communication. Before there even was an internet. Yeah. And it's just like, what the fuck? How did you do this? This is a weirdly prescient film in a lot of ways, actually. Like the whole thing about the, like that no one was talking about yet, about the stuff that would come out from the Iron uh, Iran Contra deals with like, oh, these big companies coming in and making money off money, uh, uh, selling weapons to both sides and things. You're like, yeah, this is shit that later became a bigger deal. And this movie's already like, you know what? This is what our James Bond is going to take on. I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe I'm yeah. giving it too much credit. Either way, I know that I enjoyed the shit out of this. Yes, by today's standards. Oh, having a white guy play an Asian guy is deeply offensive, By certainly by today's standards. But you can't go back and judge something that was made a time before that. As uh, all I'm saying, you like now they would I, never do it and make that decision. Well, I, I will, but that being said, Joel Gray is fucking great as that character. He really is. I, I will admit when I watched this, it was with our, our friend who's living with us, who is actually from China. And What'd so she every time he would come on, oh, he, she just kind of was on her phone and was like, this is a weird movie. But every time she, he would come on and do something wildly offensive, I kind of did a, are you okay? Okay, we're good. We're good. We're good. Okay, let's keep watching. She's like, whatever. I'm not paying attention. I'm doing the I Ching. It's fine. <laughs> Can I say that? I can't say that, can I? I'm pretty sure not. Oh, shit. I'm never sure what the rules are anymore. That's fine. I, I want to be told. But, I mean, honestly, you're not wrong. Like, like this is... I See, I actually consider this in that, at least now, one of those bad movies that's a lot of fun. The action isn't super intense because it was a different era, um, but... The performances are fun. I love Fred Ward. Ever since Trimmers and Trimmers 2, yeah. I'm always going to love Fred Ward. Oh, yeah. And so anytime he shows up, I'm happy. Uh, like, it's a good movie. It's just you got to know what you're going in for. Like, I thought this was going to be a Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension kind of movie. And so I, I spent most of it going, what the hell is going on? Yeah, what? but you do that with Buckaroo Banzai the first time you see it, too. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> This movie is not as weird as I wish it was, but it so cr like treads that line of going full on weird that I kind of love it. You're like always like, man, I, you always feel like this is about to get so much fucking weirder because it is really like I said, all this shit like dodging bullets and stuff. You're just like, this is bizarre. There's several bizarre elements. And like I said, if you read the books, the books are fucking insane. But yeah, there are no werewolves in this and no cyborgs. Sadly. I, I really want them to like make a TV series out of Rebel Williams now and just like go back and reboot the whole thing going just full crazy with it because I'm all for this type of crazy. I don't know. Again, this is not be for anyone. It's a little slow moving by today's standards. Certainly, it depends on how much you like Fred Ward. Ultimately, is what it comes or down Kate to. Mulgrew. Or Kate, well, she's not in it that much. When she is, she's, she's charming. Like 
she's and, like a secondary lead. She has her own plot lines. I mean, she's like she's. I think she's the second most featured character in the movie. And if you watched a lot of movies from the eighties, you recognize almost everyone in this film. Everybody, like John Polito, is in this thing. Who uh, I just recently uh, watched die beautifully in Miller's Crossing. You know, I mean, like it's got a lot of really cool stuff about it. It's just corny. It's a product of its time, but it was one of those films that felt like it could have been more than it was. And back then we were excited for anything we got that wasn't just bland, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, Ooh, this is a little experimental. We're thrilled <laughs> anyway. So this is a brand new Blu-ray release of this thing from Kino Lorber. Thank you, Kino Lorber. You put out so much good stuff and it comes with audio commentary with the producers that talk about the production history of the film. Uh, a radio spot, vintage us radio spot for it. Remember back when there were such things as radio spots for movies, <laughs> uh, stills promotional gallery created the destroyer writing R Remo Williams, archival program takes a look at the destroyer book series. So there you go. Unarmed and dangerous producing, uh, Remo Williams, Williams, another ar archival program with the producer and co-producer secrets of Sinanju training Remo Williams, where Joel Gray, who is really charming and fun, talks about what it was like to work with this character and the shit tons of makeup he had to wear, which again, I'm going to say was pretty goddamn good makeup. Balance of Power, designing Remo Williams, uh, production designer, talks about his involvement, and then Assassin's Tune, composing Remo Williams. We are going to move on. And because we're running long, we're just going to, we're going to split our show up into two episodes, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Also, because I've been sick. And so I need to do stuff that's like being sick. But I'm going to talk about something that is you haven't seen, which is Stargirl season two. Did you watch any of Stargirl, sir? Like the first two or three episodes, it, it, it looked good, but it hit right when I kind of was having a lot less time in my life. And also I had Berlantiverse burnout and yeah. just kind of shut down from that whole quadrant of television. I get so that. Like Stargirl, Superman, Batgirl, uh, and anything post season four of Flash, I don't think I've seen. Well, this had nothing to do with Berlanti, for the record. This was uh, oh. Jeff Johns, who was the original, I believe, creator of this character uh, in the comics, uh, premiered it with streaming service DC Universe that eventually moved to HBO. Uh, and it was the part of the attempt of shows like Doom Patrol and, and uh, I guess, Swamp Thing, I think was the other one. Yeah, Swamp uh, and, Thing. And Titans. Swamp Thing, Doom Patrol, Titans, and this. This yeah. came later, so right. I, I may or may not have had DC Universe. <laughs> but to do this thing that's like, it's a, they've established that these shows take place in a, you know, a parallel Earth to the CW or Berlantiverse, but it's not the same continuity. So it's like, if they really feel like it, they can have characters transfer through a wormhole, which they have, in fact, had happen. But this is its own thing with its own style, which is, of all the uh, HBO slash DC Universe shows, the one that probably has the biggest Berlanti feel, but that's only because it's the one that most focuses, I think, on the teen, as yeah, teen life aspects of it. I mean, even Titans is like, even though they're like the teen Titans, it doesn't, it's more like, Let's see how dark we can get. This well, it's, is it's more like, let's have fun. Everyone in their 20s. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's Teen Titans or rather Young Adult Titans. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I like 
Stargirl. I was just gonna say Stargirl learns the lesson that the Berlanti versus hasn't, at least as far as I know, and they have shorter seasons too. True, lets you fit more in. Yeah. So the idea is this is one decade after almost all of the Justice Society of America, which mind you isn't Batman and Superman. This is sort of the redheaded stepchild Justice League of America that Jeff Johns sort of rebooted in the two thousands. They died in a battle against the Injustice Society of America, who's best known for their superpower of being very uncreative with their name. And uh, <laughs> high school student Courtney Whitmore, played by Breck Bassinger, has discovered the cosmic staff of one of the original JSA, Starman, and discovers that her stepfather, Pat Dugan, played by the always uh, affable, oh God, what's his name? Um, Wilson, um, not Owen Wilson, the other one. Oh, Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson, thank you is uh he was the sidekick to the original Starman. All right. So the thing is is that he's had this staff sitting in his basement for a while because it doesn't respond to him, it doesn't respond to anyone, but mysteriously it responds to his daughter even though she has no apparent superhero background or DNA, even though for the whole first season she's like I think that the original Starman must have been my real father. He's not. They still haven't solved exactly why the staff responds to her. Maybe that will happen in a future season. But either way, she ends up going, oh, wow, I can use the staff, which is insanely powerful and lets me do all kinds of crazy shit. And one of the things she does is she breaks into the old JSA headquarters and finds the, you know, the items that gave power to the original JSA and gives them to her nerdy friends <laughs> to go, let's let's all become these new characters like Yvette Montreal, who becomes Wildcat 2, which was largely just sort of like a professional boxer and just an outfit. But here they've kind of like upped it a little bit here or Angelica w- Washington is Dr. Midnight 2, who's the nerdiest of them all, who basically is like the the tech uh, superhero or Cameron Gelman is our man too. Once again, weird power. He can only have superpowers for one hour a day, but then he's like almost Superman strength, but he's only got for one hour. I always thought that was like, who wrote this back in the day, but they found ways to make him interesting in the comic books and a variety of other characters. And by the time the second season comes along, She's got a series of fucking, like, in- kind of interesting villains, mainly teenagers, but some are adults. But they've defeated the main bad guys, and now in the second season, she's got to deal with a whole new series of bad guys. And some of them aren't as bad as they may have originally seem. Like, I was excited as hell that they introduced the, sh- introduced the Shade, who I've always thought was, in the comics, a really cool, interesting sort of character who's like... Anti, you say anti-hero, he's kind of anti-villain, where he's like, yeah, he's a villain mainly, but in a sort of like, well, I'm out for myself, but sometimes me being out for myself means taking the side of the good guys, and then I'll fight to the death to help the good guys, too. But he's sort of a Vertigo-era type DC guy who's like kind of a male Zatanna <laughs> in a way, you know, <laughs> he's a cool character. I was like, Ooh, and he's presented here as that sort of like, Oh, he's this weird sort of in between type of, is he a villain? Is he a hero? And the second season gets into some almost sort of Cthulhu-ish type stuff happening. Ooh, I don't know. No, no, not in terms of the super creepiness, but it's going for some of the imagery and some of the ideas here. I mean, like it's, focuses somewhat on the idea there's this dark shade universe that the shade 
is part of and relates to, but so do people who are much, much, much worse. The main villain being, I call, I think, Eclipso is the name. It was genuinely a scary DC villain, but it's always been a magic villain, so hard to represent against the bigger main heroes. DC hasn't really figured out how to do what to do with most of their magic heroes yet. They're still working on it. <laughs> they keep reinventing all the good ones every few years. Maybe they'll finally do Justice League Dark Justice. I don't know. Oh. But this is okay. I didn't think this was as strong as the first season. Um, it's good. It, it, it's still good. If you like the first season, you're going to like the second season. It makes some interesting choices, including sort of ways in which people who are straight up villains in the first season, they give more depth to and who are like, look, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm out for myself, but I mean, not wanting the world to end is being out for myself. So <laughs> I'm here to help, you know, type of stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of dig that sort of thing where it gives those characters a chance to expand and give them more depth. Uh, I overall had fun. It's not a show that I go, oh, I'm so addicted. I can't wait for the next season. But there's a lot of interesting things. There's a lots of, lots of um you know, if you will, woke things that are like, oh, there's gay characters that are very positively rep representative in gay re uh, relationships. And I think it's very intelligent with the way it deals with that stuff. It feels like every time it deals with something the CW would have done, gone the corniest way possible, they actually aim for the slightly more sensitive and intelligent angle on it. But it's still a show aimed at teenagers, to be clear. If you're a grown up, you're going to, by definition, be annoyed at points by Stargirl because it is not made for you. I know people say that about comic book stuff in general, but that's not true. You can watch Doom yeah, Patrol and go, true. you watch Doom Patrol and you go, this is made for me. This is a grown up superhero show. This is not a grown up superhero show. This is made for teenagers, but it's a it's a pretty good one. And I, I don't really have a lot bad to say about it other than I kind of wish it would grow up a little. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, you you kind of semi convinced me between uh, having interesting villains and Cthulhu imagery. I'm kind of sold already. Yeah, it's it's really really not not bad. Which I know sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, but for people who like who this is what they're looking for, this is about as good as this sort of thing really gets. So go for it, man. It's just not aimed at me. So I didn't attach myself as much to it, but full credit to everybody who's in it. I think all the performances are good. I think it needs some, it's still trying to, it's still trying to figure some shit out with the relationship between the main characters in terms of romance stuff. It's still, well, it's edging a weak point in these shows. Yeah. It's like, edging it's around that, it. Like, it doesn't know what it, it wants to do. You know? It's hard because if you really commit to that, it changes the dynamic of the show. Yeah. And you have to be willing to change the show to do that. So if you want any kind of regular dynamic, it becomes this like will they, won't they, uh, and it can get it can get boring fast. Look at Smallville. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, it's not egregious. You should. Give it a try if it sounds like your thing. But that's it for this episode of Digital Noise. Aaron and I will be returning shortly with the second half of our list. I know Aaron and I just, we have so much fun talking. We just go on and on and on. And we like, before we know it, it's like, is it an hour? Oh my God, it's an hour. Yeah. But uh, what is the pick for this show? Because I'm going to straight up say it's got to be Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? I, I, yes, yes. It's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Okay. I, I was really tempted to fuck with you and see Resident Evil. <laughs> I would, I would but just no, go, it, no, no, it's not. It, it, it's legitimately Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I think this, 
it's the only like really great title. It had good special features, good transfer. Go with it. Fair enough. All right. Thank you, Aaron. And we'll be back with more digital noise soon. Is that, that's how I say it now. Yeah, yeah. I like it.